Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Saddlewick. Today, we have the opportunity to welcome an incredible woman to the show whose birthright includes a long line of overachievers in the entertainment industry that includes film, TV, stage, singing, and directing. Kristen Towers Rolls is the granddaughter of the extraordinary Catherine Grayson, whose career spanned 57 years. She's the daughter of Patricia Patty Kate Johnston and Robert Towers. Her father, Robert, appeared in multiple television and film roles, including Star Trek The Next Generation, Hannah Montana, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and of course, my favorite, he performed the speaking and singing voice of Snoopy in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And Kristen's brother, Jordy, is the lead singer for the rock band, Some Kinda Wonderful. Kristen attended the Hollywood High Performing Arts Magnet School and College at American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York. She is an accomplished soprano, incredible dancer, extraordinary actress, accomplished director, and has been a part of many international and national touring productions. And despite working nonstop since 2009 in musical theater, she and her husband Ryan managed to have three beautiful daughters in three years' time. Clearly, the grass doesn't grow under Kristen's feet. Kristen Tower Rolls, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to have you here. I mean, this is a bit of a departure from what one might consider my traditional guest on this show. But mm-hmm. uh, we're going we're gonna to get into some politics and money and who knows, maybe even a little religion. I mean, we'll, uh, we'll just see how it all unfolds. But, Bring it on. Some uh, of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. So before we really get into the meat and potatoes of today's show, from everything I know about your family history and your academic background, it seems that your life was destined to be an entertainer. Was that the case or did you explore other interests in life before you pursued this career? You know, it's interesting because coming from my family, everyone would assume that it was just kind of handed to me or that I had a ton of support. And I did not. Um, I had a really broken family. My mom left when I was 15 years old and my brother was 11. She just kind of got up and left one day. And there was my dad who was an actor trying to (laughs) handle two, basically two teenagers. And uh, I did have the support of my grandmother and my father once I got into Amden, New York, and I was going to go and I, but I took out those loans and I did it. I think part of it was my grandmother came from a different time where you didn't make your own way. You, she, you know, was a contract player under the MGM dynasty. And basically they, they told you your new name. They told you what to wear, you know, controlled pretty much every aspect of your life. And so my grandmother didn't really understand my journey, which was self-made. I had to go to school. I had to take out loans. I had to, you know, wait tables and work in retail and do all the things to be able to survive in New York City while I was going to school. And so it's just a very different journey. And plus what I wanted to do doing musical theater when I went to college in the 90s, you know, that was not a viable option anymore. 
the way that it was when my grandmother was young and she was, you know, part of the whole studio system and the golden age of film sure. and musicals. It just wasn't, you know, this is past past the 80s boom of like the the British invasion stuff of, you know, cats and all of that. And even though those things were still on Broadway, Broadway did not look like a a thing that you could do forever. You needed to move from that into being on NYPD Blue and get on a soap opera and to be able to pay your bills because Broadway was not viable then. And then, of course, Rent happened right after I graduated. And that changed musical theater forever. The musical Rent. Yeah, the musical Rent. So, so yes, I did have uh, support, but it wasn't the same as like... If somebody grows, I have a lot of friends who grew up when they were the only performer in their family. Right. And so all the resources went to that kid because it was like, well, they're so talented. But I come from a family where everybody was talented. So I was just kind of like another person. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, your father was a very successful working actor, has had a very yes. long career. You yes. know, your grandmother had a, an extraordinary career. And yes, yes, it was a different time, but she was also very famous. She had fame in addition to being a working actor, right? Yes. And yes. so what was it like when you were like really young and you were exposed to that kind of attention? I mean, did did your grandmother kind of say this is not normal or was there any guidance given about that sort of thing? By the time I came along... The, the film industry, I was born in the 70s, and the film industry had changed so much. And what my grandmother was known for was such a passe thing. It was such a time capsule of the time. After her contract at MGM, she did Broadway, she did national tours and things like that. But it was just, it was in a weird impasse. And so growing up, most of my contemporaries that I grew up with did not know who my grandmother was. Okay. But their parents or their, of course, their grandparents did. And she, you know, I I don't think she loved this business. She loved being able to perform and use her voice. She really wanted to be an opera singer, actually. So she loved the, the art, but she did not love the business. And I also love the art and despise the business. So, yeah. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about today's business. Let's bring it in, you know, to what you, what you're currently dealing with. <laughs> in, in the in, industry today, right? You know, the entertainment industry today, and I guess in modern days, has played a relatively influential role into politics. And there are a few notable SAG-AFTRA members who've even got elected to public office, including Ronald Reagan and Sonny Bono, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Al Franken, Jesse Ventura. And then, of course, there was Shirley Temple Black, who was a very famous U.S. diplomat, and then, of course, you know, our most recent president, Donald Trump, which we don't want to give him a lot of airtime. And he also is no longer a member of our union. He's no longer a member <laughs> of the union. Yes, yes, exactly. Isn't that lucky for you guys, right? <laughs> yeah. And then there's some very notable influencers. When I say influencers in the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. uh, like Cynthia Nixon and Cher and Rob Reiner and many others who continuously raise awareness around uh, important uh, initiatives that are important to the community, the entertainment community. So let's talk about Hollywood and Broadway's interaction in the political arena. And what do you think drives that engagement? To be quite honest, I think that when you are in an industry 
where the work that you're doing is built around empathy. And I say that because as, as an actor, I've had to play a lot of different kinds of roles and I've had to embody people's circumstances that are very different from my own. And most actors have, I mean, most actors are not playing themselves, right? Except for the one that just left the union. Um, (laughs) That was the amount of his range. He played himself in whatever he was in. So I think because my art, our particular art form puts us in the shoes of people in sometimes desperate and dire circumstances, I think that that allows you as a human being to develop a sense of empathy, sympathy, and a desire to want to change those circumstances in any way that you can. People have actually told me that I should run for office. I'm like, oh God, it's so, you know, the whole, that's so scary. Plus it's just such a pivot, but I'm kind of like at the right age right now where I'm like, maybe this is the time to pivot. And when I think about why I'd want to, it's only because I I want no fame. It's not about that. If I wanted fame, I never would have done theater to begin with because that is not the road to fame. (laughs) That's a road to famine. Um, So (laughs) I think people that tell stories and want to change the overall mentality of society through their art, it's kind of a perfect transition into wanting to... Um, run for office and put that into a a larger perspective. You know, it's interesting you say that because when you're preparing for, say, a particular role or maybe even it's just a particular audition, let's just say it's an audition, mm-hmm. and it it does involve a character that maybe is facing some very adversarial things, and acting is a reflection of life in a lot of ways. Do you like research? Do you go through research of what real life people's lives are like as it's reflected in that character? A hundred percent. So one of my favorite roles I've ever played is from a musical called Violet. It's, um, it's based on a short story called the ugliest pilgrim. And it's about a girl in 1964 from Appalachia who, when she was 14, her mother had died and her father was chopping firewood in the backyard and he hadn't secured the axe blade. And as he rears the axe back, it flies off and hits her in the face and she's permanently scarred with this huge, you know, scar across her face. And he passes away. And so several years later, she has decided that she is going to go to this televangelist preacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he's going to fix her face. Now I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm uh, my, my, actually my family history on my grandmother's side, my famous grandmother's side is from North Carolina and the South, but we're so far removed being Hollywood people. I'm third generation Hollywood person from on my mom's side. And so I don't come from that. So I really had to understand the mentality of someone that could believe that this person in the television is going to heal them and that that her entire identity was wrapped up in that, quote, healing. Because for a woman in the 1960s, a white woman, you 
your, your whole life was, I've got to get married and a man has got to want me. That's my identity. And so I really had to do some research on that because I'm so far removed and really understand that the scar wasn't this scar, the facial scar. It was the scar. It was the emotional, how she was treated from that moment on, how men talked about her to her face. And, And some of it is in the show, but some of it, you have to come up with that stuff on your own and realize how damaging that would be when your whole identity is wrapped up in what you look like. Yes, because not everything is in the word. A lot of thing is in the emotional uh, quotient that goes with that. And the subtext of what's not being said. Yeah. yeah you know, so yes, I've had to, you know, in, as an actor, definitely put myself in shoes that I haven't walked in before. And so as a result of that, it raises your awareness level about what people, human beings are facing in the real world. That, yeah. that provides you an opportunity to potentially somebody with a microphone or a platform that you can raise awareness about. I mean, a hundred percent social issues, right? I mean, yes. currently the industry is being impacted by this pandemic. And I would say probably in many ways, not really prepared to respond to it because they had never been faced with anything like this before. I mean, 2020 virtually shut down all opportunities for work and not only shuttered the theaters of Broadway, but it put hundreds of community theaters out of business. And people need to understand that these are businesses, right? Yes. So not only are they theaters, they're businesses that have been closed, and then the employees, the support staff, the stage managers, the set design teams, the actors, everyone's out of a job. Everyone. No one's working. Correct. Right? So, yes. So how do you think the industry has been supported as a result of this? And is the legislation that has been passed thus far been effective in helping these small businesses survive? So... That's uh, there's a lot to that. So number yeah, one, we got to unwrap a lot there, right? <laughs> so uh, number one, no, the industry, the the theater industry, and I I use the word industry in quotations. Broadway is really the only big money making industry for theater. Pretty much Broadway, and then there are some big regional houses in different parts of the country. Any other theater that's considered, you know, regional or off-Broadway or community, so much of that depends on donations, concession sales, you know, selling, when you buy a $5 Coca-Cola, the reason it's $5 is because that's paying somebody's salary that hour. And not only that, but when you think about in New York, for example, at all the restaurants all the um, tchotchke shops in down in you know in the Times Square area, any of the other tourism type businesses, they rely on those people coming to see a Broadway show and staying for a week in New York to do all the other things. Right. So people like to think really small about the theater and that you know oh it's this kind of elitist art form, blah, blah, blah. But it actually is the center of the the tourism economy of New York City. So it's so much more than just the people even working in the building. It's 
all the pizza places. It's the after hours coffee and tea shops. It's Sardi's. It's every single place. Right. So, and, and, but while, but while those places like the restaurants, the small shops have been provided uh, access from federal funds to either support their employees or, you know, uh, loans to keep their businesses running, the theater, even if that money was available to the theater, the theater still would not be open because you can't have an environment right now where you can squeeze, you know, 300 people into a small theater for a live show, right? No. And so here's the difference. There's a lot of film and television happening right now. And in Los Angeles, film and television have been deemed essential, not only for the production companies um, that, you know, make their living off of that, but also all the support businesses, because Los Angeles in itself, the main industry is the film industry here. So, so we were deemed essential. Broadway was not deemed essential. And because of how this horrible viruses spread and that there were so many lives lost on Broadway and through Broadway, they are being extremely careful. SAG-AFTRA has really strong protocols for film and television. There's, you have to test the day before. You have to test on the set. There's, you know, all these protocols set up and there's a ton of filming that's happening outdoors or very few people inside a building and they space people out. Um, scripts were changed. You cannot do that in a musical. You cannot have 40 people on a stage doing big, huge dance and singing numbers and be spaced enough, nor can you space your audience enough to even warrant opening the doors, right? Because just, just putting that show on for one night costs so many thousand dollars right. in salaries and whatever with who's on the stage, who's backstage, You've got to have enough butts in the seats to make that valid. So what's the answer? I mean, is there an answer? I mean, the answer is everyone gets their butt vaccinated, not just the people in the theater. And we're all waiting. We're like, please put that thing in my arm. Right. But we're none of us are deemed essential. And most of us are not old enough right at this moment to get the vaccines. But those audience members also like get those things in your arms so that everybody can get back to doing life. Right. Um, but right. we will be one theater live theater will be one of the last things to go back because right. of the exposure, because of the protocols that now will need to be in place until the, there's enough herd immunity that this isn't raging anymore. Well, that's unfortunate news. And, and honestly, sad to hear. I was hoping honestly, that you would have some other insight for live theater. But I understand. I mean, it's like, what? what is the answer, right? Well, I will tell you that there are many, many non-union theaters that are opening across the country. They were trying to open over the summer and things like that. And I cannot tell you how many of them were super spreader events. Oh, that's not, that's something that I would not ever advocate for, nor no. would I participate in. Well, a lot of people don't know, though, that the theater that they're going to see, for example, we have a theater here in L.A., and they call themselves Broadway L.A. Now, some of those national tours 
And I'm talking pre-COVID. There's nothing yeah. happening there right now. Some of those national tours were union. And so technically, yes, that is a Broadway show that went on tour and has union members and a union house. But some of them are non-union. Now, when you go see a Broadway show, I hope everyone remembers this for the rest of their life, what I'm about to say. When you go see a Broadway show, there are no non-union Broadway shows. Every single actor you're seeing is covered by a union, gets paid health care, gets um, money put into their pension. They, you know, they get the benefit of being a normal working human being, just like anybody else that works for a company and all of that. Now, being on Broadway is the pinnacle and you're still not making a lot of money. So you're, but you know, you're getting a salary and you're doing your job. If the production company is non-union, sometimes you might be making close to the salary, but you don't get any benefits. You don't have the same protections as far as injury and loss. I was on a non-union tour in 2002. It pushed my disc out of my back. This was before I joined the union. It changed my life forever. I was told I'd never be on stage again. Now, I did go back on stage again eventually nine years later. But I, I gave up everything. I got married, had three children. I was so depressed because this happened when I was 27. And I was so depressed and thought my life was over. And so I finally said to my husband, I've got to get back on stage. And I did. And luckily, that's I've been able to keep doing what I do, even though I've had to be very careful with my back injury. But I didn't have the protection of a union. And so if you go see shows at these theaters that are not following protocol, you are contributing to unions not being important. And we already had, we just had four years of union busting and basically saying that uh, people that combine their efforts together are, you know, worthless to the government. And that's, you know, that's been going on for a long time. Sure. Well, let's, <laughs> let's, let's expand on that for a second. Diversity and inclusion is the initiative of what I'd say the 2000s vis-a-vis human resources. Yes. How has the unions and associations that support the acting community implemented programs that support diversity? And is progress being achieved? It's moving forward. I don't feel that it's moved forward fast enough necessarily. I'm specifically entrenched in musical theater, and musical theater has been very slow to kind of put people that are not traditional in certain roles. Uh, but it's it is moving forward. Um, they also have set up in in our union. I can speak for our union. They've set up a lot of committees and people that do outreach. They have people that will go, you know, sit in casting sessions, sit on sets, things like that. SAG-AFTRA because it's a much more powerful union with you know way more members because it's now also a combined union. They just have stronger protocols and more pe- more enforcement. It is moving forward. And I think after last summer, there was just a lot more vocalization on the part of people who are part of the union and are fed up, you know, A, with COVID and all of that, but then also like, you know, discussing Black Lives Matter and stuff. And a lot came out that people had been scared to say about 
you know, sick of being a token or sick of being cast as the overweight funny person and not the lead because they're overweight, things like that, where it like those are stupid things that we don't need to keep perpetuating in a community that is all about diversity and inclusion. Sure. Like we've we've got to stop feeding those same principles ourselves. And so um I think it's changing. And I think I think our art form is going to be on the forefront of that societal change. So that's great if you're a member of the union, right? Right. I mean, that works. That works really well if you're a member of the union. I mean, you have somebody that's fighting for you, somebody that's representing you. You know, you were in a position, even when you weren't a member of the union, you were still in a position of having influential relationships in the industry before you ever even started searching for your first audition, right? But there are tens of thousands who arrive in L.A. and New York every year with nothing but a suitcase and a dream. Yes. Many of those people are very talented, very talented actors, dancers, singers. What resources are in place to support them and how much of it is a result of who you know versus what you know? I hate to say it, but it is cruel. I mean, it's not, you know, this business is not for the weak. And I'll tell you this, my first day of conservatory in New York, my teacher, my musical theater teacher, who's no longer with us, great man named Tim Favell, he walked out and he was like, he's, he's used some expletive to the class. He goes, did that shock you? Welcome to New York. This is, if you're here for any other reason other than work your butt off, you are in the wrong business. If you work hard and you do a good job and you pound the pavement, you can make something of yourself, but it's going to require 150% commitment. And within a month, my class of 20 dropped to 15 students. Because I think there were a lot of people who, you know, they loved doing their high school musicals and their summer camps and whatever. And they thought, this will be fun. I want to try this. And then when they got into like the nitty gritty of what the business really is like and how hard it is, they just couldn't cut it. They didn't want to cut it. He also said, if there is anything else you see yourself doing, anything else, go do it right now. Because if this isn't going to keep you awake at night that you're not doing what you love, you are in the wrong place. Right. Right. And so I think, I think the respect there's, there's a respect and kind of like an old school understanding of like grit in New York and LA too, where it's like, if you just kind of do the thing, you do the thing forever, you will eventually earn the respect. It's years though. One thing that I think is unfortunate at this particular juncture that we're at is that there's so many of these like social media influency type people that are like 17 years old and they, you know, they have a trillion followers, so they'll get a TV show, right? They've not worked for it. They don't have the training. They don't, they haven't cut their teeth. They haven't done the done the hard time and they get this like influx of money because social media followers speak volumes. I mean, there are casting directors in LA that will check your social media following before they'll even call you in for an audition. Well, I think that, I think in the general population now, social media is something that every business looks at if they're looking at hiring you, right? It's, it's true. I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, watch what you post right? because you could, you know, lose out on even college admission. If they're looking at your social media, you got to be careful Right? because my kids are 
kind of like me, they're pretty political and they're, you know, they're teenagers and they're being affected by climate change and all the things too. So they post what they want, but I'm just kind of like, just be careful. That stuff can live forever. It can live forever. I I don't think there's anything wrong with being passionate. No, I think think being passionate is a very good thing, but we do have to harness our passion at times. Let me ask you this. My show is called Breaking Protocol. Yeah. And in your industry, there are a lot of protocols and boundaries and and structure. But there's also at times when I'm sure all of that drives you crazy, right? And so let me ask you, when did you decide I'm going against the grain, I'm <laughs> breaking every protocol in the book, and did it work out positively for you? I come from this family of like old Hollywood and I don't look like my grandmother. And it's almost at times I've had people almost kind of say like mean things to me about, you know, well, your grandmother was actually beautiful, you know, like really mean, you know, and it's, yeah, yeah. Like mean crap. (laughs) And it's not like I'm a complete like disaster looking. I just don't look like her. Kristen, you are stunningly beautiful. Well, you're sweet. You're sweet, but I don't, but I'm not like typical. I'm, I, I'm from mixed I wish background. My, I wish my viewers could see you, but my viewers aren't <laughs> viewers, sweet. they're listeners. <laughs> well, my, so like my father is from Russia and Poland. So he's Eastern European. And so I'm Jewish on my dad's side. So my features are a little more like voluptuous. I've got like big lips and I've got like these cheeks and I just don't look like typical white girl. And so my whole life I've had people say nasty stuff to me, but I'm kind of like, yeah, but I'm talented. So watch me go play these roles that are supposed to be played by like little miss perfect American. And so I've broken protocol in that way. I've also played a lot of roles that like even though I sound like my grandmother, I'm a soprano, I've played roles she never would have touched. I've played Norma Cassidy in Victor Victoria, who's like a total bimbo. I've played Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. I've played things that require some some funny and some push. And that wasn't what I was supposed to do with my life originally. I was supposed to be the soprano in every musical and the, the good girl next door. And I'm actually kind of bad at that. I'm really good at playing like, the, the off color humorous characters. So it took me a long time. I'm in my forties now. It took me a long time to figure out that that's really what I am, but better late than never. Better late than never. And you just keep kicking at those doors and you keep breaking those protocols. Well, and also really quickly also, and I say this for every woman out there, I am a director and I'm not a trained director. I started directing. Um, I was asked to direct a couple of musicals by um, a friend of mine who ran a theater company. And one after another, every show I would direct, we'd get these amazing reviews. I directed a production of Sweeney Todd that won musical of the year for Los Angeles and all this. And I don't look like your typical director. I look like, you know, a cross between like I, I don't know. I get Marilyn Monroe and I get uh, Jessica Chastain. Those are like, a, you know, if they had a baby. And so I don't look like somebody that would wear a backwards hat and sit in a theater and scream at people. But that's what I've had to do, too. 
So I've broken protocol in that way too. Cause I'm like, Oh wait, I'm a really good director. I was actually supposed to be directing a national tour. I was going to be leaving to head to North Carolina to direct my first national tour ever three weeks after COVID hit. So the show that I was directing at the time, we were one day away from opening wild party, the musical wild party. And then I was leaving to direct a national tour and neither of those things got to happen. The best laid plans, as they say. Right. The cross between Jessica Chastain and Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Kristen Towers Rolls, thank you for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadawake. Thank you for having me, Bob. Thank all of you for listening, right? More information on Kristen and her upcoming appearances can be found on her website, kristentowers-rolls.com. I'll put that in the uh, description of the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.